Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When the lights came up on Johnny Versace's 1991 fall fashion show in Milan, there was electricity and excitement in the air. Instead of sending out the usual single model, the Italian designer sent out models in packs. Long-legged women with bouncy hair sauntered down the runway in twos and threes while wearing Versace's newest collection. The showstopper was the finale, when four beautiful young women linked arm-in-arm made their way down the catwalk, laughing and smiling as they lip-synced the words of a pop song that blasted from the speakers. It was the launch of a 90s phenomenon that is as symbolic of the decade as tabloid television and the launch of the internet, but a lot more glamorous. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the reign of the supermodels. It's up for debate, but the term supermodel may have first been used by Janice Dickinson in the 1970s, at least according to Dickinson. Maybe you know her from being the brutally honest judge on America's Top Model for four seasons. But before that, she was an incredibly successful model in the 70s and a renowned wild girl of the fashion and disco scene at Club 54. Dickinson claims not only to be the first supermodel, but that she was also the first person to use the term in about 1979. Others have given credit for the term to Clyde Matthew Dessner, the owner of a small model agency in the 1940s. Regardless of when the term was used first and by whom, the concept of the supermodel as we know it today didn't really take hold until the late 80s setting the stage for the iconic supermodel era of the 90s, when a group of beautiful young women transcended the runway and became full-service celebrities. Before we look at the 90s and the supermodels that ruled the runways during that era, let's go back a little further in fashion history. In the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, runway shows put on by designers were very exclusive. And according to fashion journalist Randy Berkman, as a result, models were largely anonymous to the general public. When fashion, ha- you know, when haute couture houses were staging fashion shows in the early days, like in the 30s to the 50s to the 60s even, they were really private affairs. They were just for clients and media, not even really media, like just very, very, very small. Obviously, this is pre-video, but photos were pretty not super common. And it was a really insular world. Of course, there was the occasional model who broke through and became household names. Think Twiggy in the 1960s. But it really wasn't until the 80s that models began to infiltrate the mainstream in a noticeable way. And that's partly because of a major industry change, the mass marketing of fashion. Designers started licensing their names and manufacturing moderately priced lines that were affordable to more shoppers. It was no longer just the uber-rich wearing the latest clothes from Halston, Ralph Lauren, Pierre Cardin, and Calvin Klein. And with these new accessible lines came big marketing campaigns. You want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing. Calvin Klein jeans. 
The sexy and controversial 1980 ad campaign for Calvin Klein jeans, which featured 15-year-old Brooke Shields, was banned by ABC and CBS for implying that the young model wasn't wearing any underwear. Calvin Klein was the first high-fashion designer to launch a separate affordable line called a Diffusion line. His skin-tight jeans featured a distinctive stitch line on the back along with a Calvin Klein label that distinguished them as a designer status symbol. Not surprisingly, all the controversy over the ads only brought more attention for the brand, which sold over $70 million worth of jeans in the first year. And Brooke Shields became a household name who pivoted her modeling career to acting soon after. Shields became more than an anonymous face hawking a product. She became a celebrity. In her wake came other celebrity models in the 80s. Elle McPherson, Iman, Jerry Hall, and Christy Brinkley. And then in January 1990, the cover of British Vogue changed everything. You have on that cover Sydney Crawford, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, Naomi Campbell, and Tatiana Petit. And you have the basically birth of the supermodel. That's writer Rachel Birchfield. And she says the iconic cover is the first of three major moments in the evolution of the supermodel. I'm going to get to each of them, but first let's spend some time looking back at the picture that started it all. The black and white photo on the cover of the January 1990 edition of British Vogue was taken by legendary German photographer Peter Lindbergh. Lindbergh, who died in 2019 at the age of 74, was known for untouched, stripped-down images of glamorous A-listers. You might be surprised to learn that before making history with that Vogue cover, Lindbergh captured a similar image for American Vogue that didn't have the same impact. In 1987, Lindbergh received a call from Alexander Lieberman, the creative director of Condé Nast, Vogue's parent company. He was curious why the photographer never wanted to work for the U.S. version of the magazine. Lindbergh honestly explained that he simply couldn't relate to the images of the overstyled women they featured. In his words, he preferred photos that depicted outspoken, adventurous women in control of their own lives who weren't concerned about things like social status. So Lieberman asked Lindbergh to show him what he meant. In response, Lindbergh went to the beach in Santa Monica with a group of barely known models. Dressed simply in oversized white button-up shirts, Linda Evangelista, Karen Alexander, Christy Turlington, Estelle Lefebure, Tatiana Petitz, and Rachel Williams were captured by Lindbergh laughing and playing around on the beach. The simple images were the antithesis of the formal composition of fashion photography at the time. Those were mainly headshots of heavily made-up models. When the proofs of the beach shoot arrived at Vogue's New York office, the magazine's editor, Grace Mirabella, refused to print the images. She put them in a drawer where they stayed until Mirabella was replaced six months later by legendary Vogue editor Anna Wintour. Wintour not only loved the pictures, she commissioned Lindbergh to shoot the cover for her debut issue with Vogue in November 1988. 
It featured Israeli model Michaela Berkew in a cropped bejeweled jumper and stonewashed jeans, smiling with her eyes half-closed, head turning away from the camera. At the time, it was considered a revelation, signaling a move towards an uninhibited, pluralistic representation of beauty. As the 1980s were drawing to a close, British Vogue editor Liz Tilbaris asked Lindbergh to photograph the new woman of the 90s for the first edition of the decade. Lindbergh's reply was that he couldn't do it with just one woman. He felt the idea of beauty had broadened and it could no longer be summed up with either a blonde, blue-eyed girl or a sexy brunette. So instead, he gathered five models in Manhattan for what would become an iconic photo shoot. Cindy Crawford told Vogue in 2016, they weren't photographed with a ton of hair and makeup. In her words, they were quite undone. And she said coming out of the 80s, which was all about big hair and boobs pushed up, it felt refreshing and new. Dressed in simple bodysuits and Levi jeans, the girls set the tone of the new decade. In 2016, Lindbergh told The Guardian he had no idea they were making history with the photo. He said because it came together very naturally and effortlessly, he never felt they were changing the world. It was just all intuition. There was one other image that captured the new generation of supermodels that I should mention. It's the famous nude photograph taken by Herb Ritz for Rolling Stone magazine. It showed yet another iteration of the supermodel gang. Naomi, Cindy, Christy, Tatiana, and this time Stephanie Seymour was included instead of Linda Evangelista. The high contrast black and white image of the five models intertwined, arms and legs wrapped around each other, was actually taken in 1989 and didn't get much attention at the time. It didn't become iconic until Lindbergh's 1990 British Vogue cover introduced the masses to the new supermodel. The next major moment happened thanks to singer George Michael. He was at a turning point in his career, and when he released his 1990 album Listen Without Prejudice Volume 1, the 27-year-old singer was trying to be considered a serious artist after years as a successful pop star. So Michael refused to use his image to promote the album and only did a limited number of interviews. He also chose not to go on the road right away, saying long tours had a dehumanizing effect that works against both the creative process and a healthy personal life. And most importantly to this story, the singer told the record label he would not appear in any music videos. Michael argued that videos destroy the artistic integrity of a song by encouraging listeners to accept a single interpretation of it. As you can imagine, the label was not pleased. They still wanted something to air on MTV, which at the time could make or break the success of a new release. Michael's solution would change the course of history. After seeing the British Vogue cover featuring Peter Lindbergh's black and white supermodel photo, George Michael decided Naomi, Christie, Linda, Cindy, and Tatiana should replace him in the video for the song Freedom 90.
Freedom 90 addressed Michael's struggles with identity, artistic growth, and stardom. With poignant lyrics like, I just hope you understand, sometimes the clothes do not make the man, and music that producer Mark Ronson has described as a funk groove masterpiece, it's become a classic. It definitely could stand on its own merits, but the video of five supermodels lip-syncing the lyrics turned it into an iconic pop culture moment. The video was directed by David Fincher, who was at the start of his career and would go on to make classic 90s films like Seven and Fight Club. It was shot over several days at Merton Park Studio in London, and like the British Vogue cover, featured Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, Cindy Crawford, and Tatiana Batiz. The result was a six-and-a-half-minute moody, romantic video filmed in neo-noir tones that's been watched over a hundred million times on YouTube. It was revolutionary for many reasons, including the fact that the models were the focus of the video. In fact, they were the stars. Throughout the 80s, models had appeared in lots of music videos, but only as the sexy girlfriend to the lead singer. Think Tawny Catan and David Coverdale in the 1987 White Snake video for Here I Go Again. The first face we see in the George Michael video is Linda Evangelista, the Canadian model who is considered by many to be the catalyst of the supermodel group. Her short hair is platinum blonde, which she dyed the night before in a spur-of-the-moment decision, surprising everyone on set of the music video. Next, we see Naomi Campbell dancing as she listens to Freedom 90 on headphones. She's wearing a big pair of boots that belong to the boyfriend of the stylist in charge of the shoot. Camilla Nickerson told Vogue magazine in 2016 that director David Fincher was incredibly specific about how he wanted Christy Turlington to walk in with a long white sheet that was light enough for the light to shine through. And to get that effect, they used expensive Irish linen, and that used up Nickerson's entire budget. So everyone else's clothes came from Nickerson's wardrobe, or in the case of Naomi's boots, Nickerson's boyfriend's wardrobe. And that included the big sweater that Linda Evangelista famously pulls up over her head. That scene, by the way, wasn't planned, just something that Evangelista improvised. And after seeing the move, Fincher responded by putting a camera and a light inside her sweater and filming it. When the video was released, it introduced the new 90s supermodel to the entire MTV generation and caught the eye of a famous designer who would create the third and possibly the ultimate supermodel moment. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. In March 1991, legendary fashion designer Gianni Versace closed his couture show in Milan with Linda, Christy, Naomi, and Cindy marching down the runway in black, orange, and yellow mini dresses lip-syncing to George Michael's Freedom, reminiscent of the song's music video. Michael was in the front row watching as the girls strutted down the runway with his video projected behind them. 
Here again is writer Rachel Birchfield. Gianni Versace as a designer was iconic and brilliant, but he also was very tapped into music. He was very tapped into the culture. And it was kind of a full circle moment where music and fashion and the supermodels met. And there's this shot of the four of them walking arm in arm on the catwalk, lip syncing Freedom 90 in the Versace show. It became a hugely defining moment in fashion and was a cementing point for these women as supermodels. Prior to supermodels, runway models and photo models didn't usually overlap. A model was either one or the other. But the new 90s model did both. And a whole lot more, as we would soon find out. So who were these five or six women who infiltrated every aspect of pop culture in the 90s? And what made them so popular? Let's start with Linda Evangelista. As I mentioned earlier, Evangelista is considered by many to be the catalyst. She's from St. Catharines, Ontario, the daughter of a General Motors worker. At age 16, Evangelista was discovered by a scout from Elite Model Agency while competing in a Miss Teen Niagara contest. As soon as she finished high school, she started working full-time in the fashion industry, relocating to Paris in 1984. That's when she met 15-year-old Christy Turlington, who had been invited to the City of Lights by the Ford Modeling Agency. Christy grew up in Northern California and was more concerned with horses than modeling. But when a photographer took her picture and sent them to Eileen Ford, the grand dame of the modeling industry spotted something special in the young team. In the summer of 1985, on a job in London, Christy met Naomi Campbell, who was a year younger. Campbell, the UK-born daughter of Jamaican immigrants, was discovered by an elite modeling scout at age 15 while studying ballet at the Italia Conti Performing Arts School in London. Linda took both of the younger girls under her wing, and by 1989, Christy was staying in Linda's New York apartment, the same building where Naomi also lived. That's when the original supermodel trio was born. A tight click, they moved together, went out together, and even began to be booked together. And for a time, they were all with Elite Paris, which was run by Gerald Marie, Linda's husband at the time. Fashion insiders began calling them the Trinity, a term they hated but couldn't escape as they became a bigger sensation on the runways, in the pages of magazines, and on the dance floors of New York nightclubs. For example, by 1990, Linda Evangelista had been on 60 magazine covers and was under contract to Revlon as the Charlie Perfume Girl. Evangelista also made history with a quote that has haunted her ever since. In fact, Evangelista's name is barely ever mentioned without referring to it. In October 1990, she told a reporter, We have this saying, Christy and I, we don't wake up for less than $10,000 a day. Through the years, the quote has morphed a bit, most commonly remembered as, I don't get out of bed for less than $10,000 a day. The statement echoed around the fashion world, and there was definitely some backlash. But Rachel Birchfield looks at it a bit differently. Just that swagger and confidence that we so often see with men 
Now here comes Linda Evangelista saying that, and it's a whole new era, not just for modeling, but for women. And it's 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 all at once empowering and also kind of off-putting, like diva-ish. But I choose to look at it as, okay, Linda, if, heck, if I could make $10,000 a day, if that were a possibility for me, I don't think I'd wake up for less than that either. And it's just like, she knew her power and she harnessed it. And I love that. Despite the controversial comment, Evangelista remained a highly in-demand supermodel. Some say the model's career took off because of her marriage to Gerald Marie, who was the head of Elite's Paris office. Evangelista was just 18 when she tied the knot with 37-year-old Marie in 1987. The marriage lasted six years, and recently, about a dozen women have come forward to say that during that time, they were sexually assaulted by Marie. Something that Evangelista says she knew nothing about, but believes probably happened. Others say that Evangelista's career took off because of the alliance she forged with celebrated fashion photographer Stephen Mizell. Evangelista was a longtime muse of Mizell and once told the New York Times that she feels like Stephen's Barbie doll. Still others say it all happened because of the chances she took with her hair. In 1988, Evangelista cut her hair extremely short, going against the standard long hair look of most models at that time. Photographer Peter Lindbergh had convinced her to cut off her hair, and initially she lost several runway jobs because of it. But within a couple of months, she had appeared on every Vogue cover. Evangelista was also constantly dyeing her hair, changing the color 17 times over five years. In quick succession, she went from brunette to platinum blonde to a flaming redhead, becoming the talk of the industry. Either way, she reigned as one of the top supermodels, if not the top supermodel, for about six or seven years, which is an eternity in the fashion world. By her side were Christy and Naomi, the remaining two-thirds of the Trinity. Christy Turlington's rise to fame began in 1986, when she appeared in Duran Duran's video for Notorious. The next year, she landed the cover of German Vogue, and at the age of 20, she signed a record-setting contract as the new face of Calvin Klein, helping launch the designer's new fragrance, Eternity. Turlington's name eventually became synonymous with Calvin Klein, particularly after she worked alongside Dutch model Mark Vanderloo for the 1995 Eternity campaign. In the iconic black-and-white ad, Turlington and Vanderloo cozy up on a beach. Hair slicked back, they look like they just came in from the ocean. Turlington was also the face of Maybelline, signing a famous contract with the cosmetics company that paid her $800,000 for just 12 days of work. And in 1993, the Metropolitan Museum of Art declared Turlington was the face of the 20th century, after famed fashion designer Ralph Pucci created 120 mannequins modeled after her exclusively for the Met's Costume Institute. The final element of the supermodel trinity was Naomi Campbell. She too appeared in music videos in her early days of modeling. In fact, at age seven, she played a small role in the Bob Marley video for the song Is This Love? The legendary reggae singer is pictured putting a blanket over the sleeping, pint-sized future supermodel. 
Campbell is of Chinese Jamaican heritage and was raised by her grandmother and aunts in South London, while her mother toured Europe as a professional dancer. At the age of 16, a year after being discovered, Naomi landed her first cover on Elle magazine. And then in 1988, at the age of 18, she became the first black woman to appear on the cover of French Vogue, breaking down barriers for other models of color like Tyra Banks. Over the years, Naomi became known as the queen of the runway. Here's Randy Bergman. Like her walk was just so otherworldly. Like just the way that she moves down a runway is just with like the, the confidence and the just her movements were so natural and so beautiful and so sexy. And, and I think her persona was also larger than life. Like all of them were of course, but hers especially has carried through. It's like pretty timeless at this point. But despite her obvious talent and stunning looks, Naomi Campbell had to fight against being racially sidelined through her career. Campbell has said that she felt she needed to be twice as good as a white model to be considered. Campbell has also revealed that one of the reasons she kept booking shows despite industry racism is that fellow members of the supermodel trinity, Linda Evangelista and Christy Turlington, refused to walk in shows without her. At the beginning of the 90s, the three women known as the Trinity seemed to be everywhere, becoming as big or bigger than movie stars. Not only were they modeling, they were also in music videos, on talk shows, and seen hanging around together in the pages of celebrity magazines. Eventually, the Trinity was expanded to the Big Five, bringing Tatiana Petitz and Cindy Crawford into the supermodel fold. Tatjana Petitz was born in Hamburg, Germany, and was first discovered by photographer Peter Lindbergh at the age of 17, and then moved to California to pursue modeling. She's been called the most mysterious of the supermodels, partly because, of the five, she is the only one who didn't really become a household name. She was eventually replaced in the Big Five by German model Claudia Schiffer. But Tatiana was certainly no less beautiful than the others, with her cat-like eyes and her perfect bone structure. And like the other supers, she was the face of numerous coveted campaigns, including Chanel, Calvin Klein, and Versace. The fifth member of the Big Five, on the other hand, may be the most well-known. Here's Rachel Birchfield. The one that I remember the most is Cindy Crawford because she was a Midwestern girl like me. She's from Illinois. I'm from Kansas. She was bread and butter, America's sweetheart. I remember watching her on MTV's House of Style, um, which was a whole other, that was very different too, because you did not see supermodels or models hosting TV programs. And so then you've got Cindy Crawford for six years from 1989 to 1995 on House of Style and that 1992 iconic Pepsi commercial that she was in in the Super Bowl. I can still see that in my mind right now. And so I would have to say Cindy Crawford to me is just like forever the ultimate supermodel. Cindy Crawford's rise to fame began in 1982, when she won the Look of the Year contest held by the elite modeling agency. And although she was considered an all-American girl, she was not the typical blonde that had dominated modeling for the past 30 years. Crawford had brown hair, brown eyes, and an olive complexion. Plus, she had a more curvy athletic build. And of course, that famous beauty mark near her mouth. 
Early on, some potential clients wanted her to remove the mole, but she always said, no way. Make no mistake, though, Crawford wasn't just a pretty face. She studied chemical engineering at Northwestern University before dropping out to pursue a career in modeling. Crawford was also a shrewd businesswoman. When she didn't jive with Sports Illustrated producers, Crawford shot her own swimsuit calendar in 1992 and gave a portion of the proceeds to charity. An exercise video called Shape Your Body followed later that year, which was mainly Cindy on a beach in a bathing suit with her perfect hair and body, lifting little hand weights. Now lean forward. We're going to give our biceps and shoulders a little break, elbows up, and kick back. Crawford was also one of the first models to sign a big endorsement deal that went beyond the fashion or cosmetics world. The 1992 Pepsi commercial that Rachel mentioned shows Cindy in cut-off jeans and a tank top getting out of a bright red Lamborghini and walking over to a Pepsi vending machine. Two young boys watch in awe as she chugs back a cold can of Pepsi. Is that a great new Pepsi can or what? Introducing a whole new way to look at Pepsi and Diet Pepsi. It's beautiful. The ad won a prestigious Clio Award in the soft drink category for the BBDO ad agency, which stated they picked Crawford for the ad promoting Pepsi's new look because of her all-American looks and her personality. A BBDO executive said they tried lesser-known models, but the magic just wasn't there. Pepsi wasn't alone. More and more companies were going with one of the five supermodels for high-profile campaigns. The New York Times reported in 1992 that recession-weary marketers trying to save money by cutting back on the number of ads they run were hiring more expensive models that would definitely get noticed. They wanted more bang for their buck, and supermodels like Cindy Crawford were a guaranteed no-brainer. The result? Consumers were seeing the same five faces over and over, promoting everything from perfume to purses. In addition to Pepsi, Cindy Crawford appeared in ads for Revlon and Capizio bags. And as Rachel mentioned, she hosted the hugely popular MTV show, House of Style. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford. Welcome to House of Style, coming to you this time from Paris. This city is always buzzing with style and glamour, but even more so right now as press and fashion buyers from all Crawford seemed to be everywhere, appearing not only in fashion magazines, but also in Playboy, GQ, and Sports Illustrated. Prince even wrote a song about her called Cindy C. And if that wasn't enough, at the height of her fame, Cindy Crawford married high-profile Hollywood actor Richard Gere, who has starred in a long list of blockbuster movies, including Pretty Woman. The couple first met at a star-studded barbecue hosted at the home of photographer Herbritz around 1988. Gear was 39 and Crawford 22. Despite the 17-year age difference, they married in December 1991 at a spontaneous Las Vegas wedding, exchanging homemade tinfoil rings at the altar. Back in the day, Gear and Crawford were a legit power couple, on par with Jay-Z and Beyonce. Okay, maybe more like John Legend and Chrissy Teigen before she was cancelled. They were both at the height of their careers, and when they got together, people couldn't stop talking about them. Take, for example, their arrival at the 1991 Academy Awards. Crawford's plunging red Versace gown inspired countless lookalike dresses and became so influential that it even has its own Wikipedia page. 
But like a lot of Hollywood marriages, this one did not last. The couple split up in 1995 after four years together. During the marriage, the couple was constantly the target of gossip and rumors. Tabloid papers were relentless with the accusations that Gear and Crawford got married as a publicity stunt because they were both hiding the fact they are gay. The rumors got worse when Cindy appeared on a provocative cover of Vanity Fair magazine in 1993 with openly gay musician Katie Lang. The next year, in 1994, Gear and Crawford paid for a full-page ad in the London Times, proclaiming, among other things, that they are heterosexual and monogamous, and reports of a divorce are totally false. Years later, Crawford said the real reason for their split was partly the 17-year age gap and partly their busy schedules. The movie star and supermodel were constantly working in different parts of the world, and apparently they had to check in with secretaries to find out what was going on in each other's lives. By the time they put their Bel Air mansion on the market, they had reportedly never spent a single night together in the house. Cindy looks back on the supermodel era with fondness, and she told British Vogue in 2019 that being part of that group of models was almost like being in a boy band. They were all different, but looked good together. Randy Bergman agrees. I mean, they all kind of had different looks, and that was so so cool about them. Like, I think they were almost like the original Spice Girls in that way. I think that's also why people love... I think people love, like, pick your fighter kind of thing. You know, like, people love, like things that are the same that are different. I mean, I know I love that. So I think they were all supermodels and they were all united in the fact that they were all super, super glamorous and their personalities were over the top and in a really glamorous and gorgeous way. But individually, they all had their own personas, which were so specific. It was like, you know, Linda was the chameleon. Naomi was the tood. Cindy Crawford was like the all-American sort of most mainstream one. Like they all, they all had their own their own versions of themselves. Their looks and personalities may have all been different, but the supermodels all represented glamour. That was unattainable for most people, but fun to look at and dream about. Author Michael Gross says the original 90s supermodels weren't just another way to sell clothes. They were the visual projection of the dreams of millions. Of course, there were other models working during this time who weren't part of the original Big Five, but were very successful models, even supermodels in their own right. Tyra Banks, Helena Christensen, Carla Bruni, Stephanie Seymour, Veronica Webb, and a young waif-like model by the name of Kate Moss. British-born Kate Moss was discovered at age 14 at JFK Airport in New York and helped spark the heroin chic trend as she rose to fame in the early 90s. The look was characterized by a skinny body, an angular bone structure, pale skin, and sometimes even dark circles under the eyes. The look was also a bit androgynous, which was the direct opposite of the healthy, curvy bodies of the current crop of supermodels like Cindy Crawford and Claudia Schiffer. Moss was just 5'7 and weighed barely 100 pounds. When Moss was 17, she was selected to be in an ad campaign launching Calvin Klein's new youth-oriented line, along with Mark Wahlberg, who was still going by his rap name, Marky Mark. The controversial 1992 campaign featured a topless Moss and a buff Marky Mark, also shirtless, talking about his snug underwear. These these are the 90s, man. They just fit good and they hold hold me snug. So if I'm about to go get some skins, I'm not going to put on like no silk underwear. 
The ad sparked negative reaction from some supermodels, including Claudia Schiffer, who didn't like what she called unnecessary nudity. A feisty young Moss responded by saying, that's how she made her fortune. She sold her body like I sold mine. More recently, though, Moss has described her time on set at the Calvin Klein photo shoot with Mark Wahlberg as extremely uncomfortable. Remember, she was only 17 at the time. Moss says she had a nervous breakdown, crying in the bathroom, and for two weeks after, couldn't get out of bed. The Calvin Klein campaign officially launched Kate Moss, and the look that would soon be called heroin chic by some, and elegantly wasted by others. By the fall of 1992, Moss had taken over the runway, appearing in the famous Marc Jacobs grunge show. In her wake came a wave of other waif-like models, including Amber Valletta and Shalom Harlow. But the look didn't last long. According to author Michael Gross, the waif look was uncommercial and too controversial to survive longer than a normal fashion trend. In his book, Model, The Ugly Business of Beautiful Women, Gross writes that Moss's scrawny look inspired protests. The words, feed me, were scrawled across posters and billboards. And in June 1993, the New York Daily News described Moss as a skin and bones model who looks like she should be tied down and intravenously fed. Magazines even received angry letters from upset readers. And by 1994, the trend was essentially dead. But Kate Moss survived. In fact, she thrived. She started hanging out with Christy Turlington and Naomi Campbell, began dating Hollywood actor Johnny Depp, and soon the supermodel group went from the Big Five to the Big Six. Moss and Depp were another it couple in the 90s. They were often photographed either partying or arguing or sometimes both. They were both accused of trashing hotel rooms. And one report suggested they ordered a champagne-filled bathtub at a West London hotel in 1988. In case you're wondering, it takes about 36 bottles of champagne to fill up a bathtub. Moss developed a notorious reputation for partying hard during the 90s, which continued into the 2000s and would eventually cost her several contracts when photos of her doing drugs with boyfriend Pete Doherty were sold to the tabloids. A book published in 2014 called Champagne Supernovas claimed the tiny model had earned the nickname The Tank because she could snort three grams of cocaine and drink a bottle of vodka in one sitting. Another supermodel with a super bad reputation was, of course, Naomi Campbell. Through the 90s, Campbell was linked romantically with many high-profile men, everyone from Mike Tyson and Robert De Niro to Sylvester Stallone and Eric Clapton. She was also engaged at one time to YouTube bassist Adam Clayton. Through the 90s, there were frequent media reports about Campbell's diva-like behavior and her angry outbursts directed at hotel employees, airport staff, and assistants. In 1993, Campbell was fired by elite modeling in a very public way. Agency founder John Casablancas faxed a letter around the world to all of the company's clients, stating, To whom it may concern, please be informed that we do not wish to represent Naomi Campbell any longer. No amount of money or prestige could further justify the abuse that has been imposed on our staff and clients. All who have experienced this will understand. Looking back now, it's ironic that Casablancas 
would call out Naomi's behavior when he himself was engaged in some pretty disturbing activity. According to The Guardian, Casablancas, who moved in social circles with Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump, was notorious for sleeping with his teenage models. For example, in 1983, he had a public relationship with model Stephanie Seymour. Casablancas was 41, Seymour just 15. But getting back to Naomi Campbell, in recent years, she's become an activist and a philanthropist, but is still often saddled with her diva identity. It's hard not to consider whether that identity was partly shaped by a media and public that played into the angry black woman trope. Sure, Campbell misbehaved in the 90s, but so did the likes of Mark Wahlberg and Hugh Grant, but they have long since been forgiven. Campbell herself told Harper's Bazaar in 2020 that the angry black woman label has been used against her many times. She says in an effort to silence her. Her response? Well, here I am. The 90s supermodel moment really began to wind down around 1995. Most of the supers had grown too big for the fashion world and were mostly absent from runways. They were too busy filming movies, hosting TV shows, and recording pop records. That's Naomi Campbell singing Baby Woman on her 1994 album by the same name that was widely panned by critics and the public. Some of the supers even got into the restaurant business. In 1995, Claudia Schiffer, Elle McPherson, and Naomi Campbell opened the first fashion cafe at New York's Rockefeller Center with entrepreneur brothers Tommaso and Francesco Beauty. The fashion cafe was a kitschy tourist spot, a lot like the Hard Rock Cafe, with lots of fashion memorabilia and very little emphasis on the food. The grand opening of the New York location attracted fashion and Hollywood elite, like Gianni and Donatella Versace, Tyra Banks and Eileen Ford, as well as Stephen Baldwin, David Copperfield, the Wayan brothers, and Jon Stewart. At the opening, Schiffer told reporters, It's our baby. We make all the decisions. The difference between the girls today and models of the past is that we are not only interested in fashion, we are going in so many different directions at once. We work harder at night and on the weekends. Three months later, things were going so well that Christy Turlington decided to come on board and soon seven more locations were added in places like London, Jakarta and New Orleans. But as author Matt Haig pointed out in his book, Brand Failures, the connection between models and food was not an obvious one. And fashion was not a theme that made people hungry. Plus, the Beauty Brothers were mismanaging things behind the scenes, eventually leading to a litany of federal charges and lawsuits. As a result, all of the fashion cafes closed down in 1998. As supermodels continued spending more and more time away from the runways, some designers and fashion editors were becoming less enamored with them for other reasons. Tired of bad attitudes and high prices, some designers and fashion editors started looking beyond the handful of women who had been ruling the runways for the past decade. Plus, Randy Bergman says, because of the normal ebbs and flows of the fashion industry, it was time for a change. 
it wasn't like the supermodel went away. It was a different supermodel. It was like the Giselles and the Tyras of the world. It was then the Heidi Klum's. Like it was, it was Victoria's Secret. Like that Brazil thing. Like that was sort of just what took over in the late '90s to the early 2000s. There was also a big shift happening in Hollywood. In previous generations, movie stars shied away from endorsing products or dressing up in designer clothes. But a new generation of actors had no problem with it. Soon, Revlon signed Halle Berry and Selma Hayek, and Kira Sedgwick was featured in ads for Saks Fifth Avenue. The final blow came in 1998, when the all-important September issue of Vogue magazine featured actor Renee Zellweger on its cover. She was the first non-model to appear on the front of the magazine, and for many, it signaled the end of the supermodel era. Here's writer Rachel Birchfield. Tawny Goodman of Vogue said, why, why not put these movie stars on the cover? Because then you get um, people that were going to read about fashion anyway, right? And, the, and these models might be on the inside of the magazine. But now you've also hooked people that are interested in this celebrity, like Kirsten Dunst or Julia Roberts or Sandra Bullock or Meg Ryan or someone like that. And so, you know, that started to become more the norm on magazine covers. By the end of the 90s, most of the original supermodels had already moved on. Linda had retired, Christy went to college, and Cindy retreated to Malibu with her second husband, Randy Gerber. Claudia traded in the high-profile American magician, David Copperfield, for the low-key English film director, Matthew Vaughn, whom she married in 2002. And they all became mothers. In the 20 years since then, many new models have come and gone following in the path laid out by the women of the 90s. They paved the way for the multi-purpose model who doesn't just walk in fashion shows. But until recently, few have become household names. Now with Kendall Jenner, the Hadid sisters, and even Kaya Gerber, Cindy Crawford's daughter, it feels like a slight return to the era of the supermodel. Just slightly, though. That's because none of today's models have managed to capture the public's imagination like the 90s supermodel. Writer Rachel Birchfield blames it on social media. She says models today are just too accessible to have the same impact. I mean, especially Kendall Jenner, my gosh, I feel like I know everything about her life since she was 10 years old because of keeping up with the Kardashians. But, um, you know, there's there's a point where there is that air of mystery and that is so compelling and that is why we were, we were so compelled by these women that we don't have anymore. We know all about Gigi and Bella and Kendall and even Kaya and that's fine but it, they'll, there will never be another 90s supermodel. That is, that is a class all its own. The Jenners and the Hadids of today may not have the same impact or name recognition as the supermodels of the 90s, but today's runway queens have something else to hang their hat on. Big, big salaries. According to Forbes, Kendall Jenner was the top-earning model in 2018, earning $22.5 million in 12 months. Linda Evangelista's comment that she doesn't get out of bed for less than $10,000 seems almost quaint, doesn't it? As for the 90s supers, they walked the runway together again in 2018 in a bold tribute to Johnny Versace on the 20th anniversary of his death. For the finale of the runway show, his sister Donatella gathered the original supers once again. 
For that show, Cindy was flanked by Naomi Campbell, Elena Christensen, Carla Bruni, and Claudia Schiffer. As they closed the show, marching down the catwalk in Milan to the tune of George Michael's Freedom 90, just like they did almost 30 years earlier. Missing that night but not forgotten were Linda Evangelista, Tatiana Petitz, and Christy Turlington, the other three-fifths of Michael's original supermodel-filled music video. Thanks for listening to this look back at 90s supermodels. It's great to be back after a summer break, and we have lots of great shows planned for you this fall. So please make sure to subscribe to History of the 90s so you never miss an episode. Thanks to my two special guests, Rachel Birchfield and Randy Bergman. In addition to writing about fashion, Rachel also hosts a cool podcast about the British royal family called Podcast Royal. And Randy also has a great podcast and website called Capsule 98. If you haven't already, make sure you check it out. I'll put links to both podcasts in the show notes. If you've got an idea for an episode, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History and on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. You can also email me anytime at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Velasquez. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 